0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmyra.ca. So if you haven't turned already in your Bible, if you have a physical Bible with you, let me encourage you to find Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I had to earfold mine because it's hard to find sometimes, okay? Uh, So get digging in there. When I was a teenager, uh, I walked into a Christian bookstore on the island of Montreal where I I was living near the city. And uh, there were very few churches in the city at all. There was lots of Catholic churches, but there weren't a lot of evangelical churches. And as far as I knew, this was the only kind of Christian bookstore around. And I walked into the store and I was looking for a book. I had no idea what I was looking for. I was just looking for a Christian book, I was like maybe fifteen years old or something, and I happened to grab the book Mere christianity by c s lewis and i don 't know if any of you have read that book. we actually have some copies at the back. If you have never read it, uh, we got them just for ten dollars. You can just put a donation in the in the giving can at the back, but we'll just take one and and read it. I would encourage you to do that c. s. Lewis uh, wrote this book but not with the intention actually of writing it. The story goes this way, that the, the people in England were in a state of shock and tragedy. They had just experienced World War I, where thousands of British men, mostly men and some women, went to fight in the trenches of Europe and died horrific deaths and came back traumatized. By the event, some 15 to 17 million people were killed in the trenches in Europe. And then following that, something that we're a little bit familiar with, came the Spanish flu, this pandemic that that went over the whole world and killed an estimated 50 million people. Then in the 30s, another war begins in the late 1930s. And Germany is attacking. Europe is expanding its borders. And in 1942, they are flying sorties over England and bombing English cities. And C.S. Lewis, at that time, was actually in the military, and he was running a air siren station. So when the bombers would come over, he would be the one who would I don't know push the button or turn the wheel to sound the sirens. And the people in England were, like I said, in a state of shock. They were traumatized. Another world war was beginning and they were experiencing these things. And Lewis found himself giving talks to soldiers, specifically in the Air Force, that dealt with issues like pain and suffering in this world. How to deal with tragedy that comes into your life. How to make sense of the difficult, like the really difficult things as they happen in real time in their lives. And these talks that he ended up giving to these soldiers ended up becoming four radio programs on the BBC, which then became Mere Christianity, the book. And he titled the book Mere Christianity because within the English context was a people, the English people, who considered themselves to be Christian, They would call themselves a Christian. If you would talk to someone in the pub or in the factory or on the street, they would call themselves Christian. But here they came now, to this season of their lives, with the great question, who's God? Who's holding this world together? What is happening around us? We're supposed to be Christian. We're supposed to know who God is and what he's doing, and and we are unable to answer that question. And so they were regularly asking the question, God, what are you up to? God, what are you doing? We are not living through World War II by any means. We're not even living through World War III, even though that phrase has kind of been kicked around a little bit in the last few months. But we're definitely living in a time of confusion A time where the world seems unsettled. A time where when we watch the news and we see what's happening in Ukraine, we're kind of like scratching our head and asking, how is this happening in our day? We thought this was something for the history books, but here it is again happening in the news in real time. We've all just experienced and still are experiencing the, the pandemic and all that that has brought. All of us have experienced the The division and the tension that that has brought to conversations, whether it's related to things uh, in the church or just things in our society in general, we live in disorienting times where I would not be surprised if many of us, the vast majority of us, have probably asked that same question God, what are you up to? God, what are you doing? And in our most honest moments, we may even say, okay, God, there's those problems on the planet, but on a more personal level, there are things going on in my life. There is strife maybe in my home, or there's tension in my work, or there's like a physical problem happening in my body, or there's some sort of personal challenge, not a global problem, but a personal in my life problem, and I'm asking that question again, God, what are you up to? What are you doing, God? Can't you, like, get my life right? Maybe the world's too complicated, but I'm just one person here. I'm just one household. Can't you get my life right? And so we come here to Habakkuk, a book that is 2,600 years in the history. And the thing I love about the word of God is that it speaks to us today just as clearly as it did 2,600 years ago. The Word of God is relevant today in 2022, just as it was in 1,500, as it was in Jesus' day when this book was 600 years old already, as it did the day that Habakkuk was experiencing these things. And so we've decided as a church to do what we have always done in our existence is go verse by verse through this book and see what does it say to us and what answers maybe does it have or lessons does it have to teach us about the confusion of the world that we live in, the struggles that we face. Maybe not exactly what Habakkuk is facing but the principles that we can actually draw from this text for our lives and that's what we're going to do. So again, if you have your Bible, let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1 that says this. It's short and sweet. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk saw. Now, there's not a lot for us to hang our hats on in that single verse, but if you look at commentators and you study Habakkuk, you'll discover that we actually don't know a lot about him. It's kind of a mysterious person, there's no lineage. There's no background here. We'll see like a little bit later. Verse 6 is maybe about the only thing that helps us place it in Israel's history somewhere with Babylon and how God is going to use the Chaldeans. But there is like a lot of mystery around Habakkuk. But it's one of those prophetic books that has a message to say to us. And the key word for us to take from this first verse, and the reason that we're just pausing here, is the second word, at least in the ESV, and it's that word oracle. The word oracle, which means message. It's not, a, it's not a word that we use very often, but it's actually a specific kind of message. It is a heavy burden. That's what oracle means, a heavy burden. The Hebrew word masa means heavy burden. It comes from a farming culture where people would see that to take a load from here to there, they would load up maybe a donkey or maybe a camel. So picture in your mind a camel with maybe these huge, I don't know how easy it is for you to picture a camel, like loaded with sacks on the side, filled with like heavy clusters of dates that it's going to carry from one village to the next. That camel that is under that burden, that heavy weight, that's the word masa. That's the word oracle. That's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, the message that I'm going to give to you, the word that I have for you, is a word that is weighty. It's a word that is heavy. It may not be like, hopefully a little bit, that is the most like uplifting, right? You're just like, you're leaving here joyous. Maybe you will, hopefully a little bit. It's a message, actually, that is weighty for us. And sometimes those things come our way, where we have heavy things to say to someone or heavy messages to carry to someone. We were talking in our missional family this week about um, Sam was saying how he had a, an intern who was working under him and I don't know all the details, but it wasn't really working out well. So the, the internship or the job, potential job, wasn't going to happen. And so Sam was kind of telling us how That was kind of like weighty, just even knowing that that conversation was coming and kind of have to sit down, or I don't know if it was on Zoom to tell the person, hey, it's not going to work out. That's a weighty message because it's something that you have to tell, it's a message you have to give, but it comes with consequences for someone's life. And so Habakkuk here is saying, I have a weighty message for you, it's a message that's heavy. It's a conversation between God and Him, but the message itself is heavy. And that really is the nature of God's word, isn't it? As as joy-filled as this book is, and as truth-giving and as life-giving as it is, it is still a message that is weighty. It's a message that's heavy. And a message that when we give it, when we share it with others. When we Even when we take it in as Christians, it's, it's weighty. God's word has a weight to it that is hard to handle sometimes. And maybe it's at times something that we want to even avoid. The problem is that we live in a day and age where it's weighty for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that it's, it's a burden for us is that it's the truth of God. We use that word truth. But in the day and age that we live in, truth is kind of negotiable, or it's debatable. Like, what's, what's really truth? What's the starting point? And actually, in Mere Christianity, chapter one of Lewis's book, he begins with that very question. How do you determine what is right for one person, and another thing is right for another person? How do we know which one is the right one? Is it a left turn, or it is it a right turn? And he, he, he gives the explanation of it's like a, a crooked stick, How can you actually say that that stick is crooked? What's the straight line? And this is not just a modern issue that we're facing. If you look in John's gospel in chapter 18, and I think I have the verses up here, Jesus is in a dialogue with Pilate, and it says this, Then Pilate said to him, You are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What's truth, Jesus? You're talking about truth. You're talking about a straight line. What is it? And as Jesus and as Christians... We're saying truth is not found in Darcy. Truth is not found in Citizens Church. What we're saying is truth is found in Jesus. Truth is found in him. Now, our prayer and our hope is that when you come here, what you discover and what you hear out of my voice is that very thing, that Jesus is the truth and that's what we point to. That is our straight line. And so we come to the word and even as Christians, we come now and we want to discern these heavy messages that are in scripture to see Jesus in them and to take in that truth. And we're called in scripture in the New Testament to do that work of discernment. That work of, the the word discernment is like to, to test, to weigh out, to figure out what is the truth of this message that is coming to me, this oracle that is coming to us. What's the truth? What is the message at hand there? In First Thessalonians 5, just talking about this idea of testing, it says, but test everything and hold fast to what is good but abstain from all forms of evil. And in 1 John 4, which talks, the whole book of 1 John talks a lot about this idea of testing, or discerning. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So John is saying, here is what you need to Here's your lens for discerning a message from God. Does it point to Jesus? Does it point to him as the truth? Does it point to him as the baseline? So we're called as as Christians here to test that statement. Is Jesus the truth? We We want to dive into that. But we also want to invite people that we know, whether it's in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as they also wrestle with this idea of truth, Ask them to test Jesus. Just invite them into that journey. And it may be something that you will go on that journey with them on to discover who is Jesus. But the temptation, and the reason why I'm spending so much time on just verse 1 here, is because the temptation for all of us is to choose the easy message. To choose the easy road. It's much easier to turn away from whether it's hard passages in scripture or hard revelation about who Jesus is. We love the Jesus. We've been talking about him in the Gospel of Mark who is the friendly, bread-providing, child-hugging man. That we love that Jesus and we should love that Jesus. It's a picture of who he is. But when we have been studying the Gospels, if you haven't been joining us, we've seen that Jesus says a lot of hard things. Jesus challenges us. Miroslav Volf, the theologian, says this, Why should we want to part with our self-deceit and prejudice if they give us power and privilege? Because the truth sets us free? But why should we not prefer captivity with power and privilege to freedom with weakness and suffering? Why not treat truth and untruth simply as political words, weapons in competition for power? Before you can search for the truth, you must be interested in finding it. So Wolf is saying, it's so tempting when you're in a, you're in a place of advantage and you're enjoying a good life just to avoid like the, the real raw truth of things. He's saying, "It's just way easier just to kind of avoid that and just kind of keep trucking along and enjoying your life. but as believers, our calling is to search for the truth and to find it in Jesus, no matter how hard the message is. So, Habakkuk has a heavy message, and what does it say to us? Lord, how, to look at these raw words. Raw language. This is direct speech. Habakkuk is like not sugarcoating any of his feelings and the thoughts that are inside of him. He's just letting it out. And it it should be, if you really like ponder these words, like a little bit shocking for us to take these in because we know that at different levels of authority, you should talk to someone in a certain way. Okay, and maybe like a graphic example of this, and I don't know if this has happened to you before, but if you've been at the grocery store and you've seen uh, a child with their mother or father and the child in the cart grabs like a box of cookies or something, right? And wants the cookies. And the mom or the dad is like, sorry, inflation is too high. You know, we're, we're not gonna get these cookies right now. Takes the cookies back, put them back on the shelf and the kid in the moment loses it right, starts wailing and screaming, and maybe even in that moment just yells out like, I hate you, daddy. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Maybe that happened to you. Maybe it was you, right? I hate you, daddy. And everybody in the grocery store kind of like looks over and is like, whoa. Because generally everybody knows that's not appropriate. Like, okay, the kid's having a bad day, really likes cookies, but There's a better way to deal with that in that moment. And we know, generally, that there's a a way for a child and a parent to relate to each other. The thing that makes this so shocking is, is that Habakkuk is talking to God. He's saying these things to God, creator of the world, sustainer of everything. The one who, in a moment, could just destroy Habakkuk. And what does he say to him? Look at the text. He's saying things like, you will not hear. You will not save. You're, you're just idly looking at wrong. The law is paralyzed. Justice is being perverted. Habakkuk's saying, you call yourself God, but you're not God. You can't do these things. You can't handle these problems that I'm seeing with my own eyes before, before me. You can't. Solve these problems. They're too great for you. One of the wonderful things about these verses right here, and if, if you're a, like a highlighter or a writer in your Bible, I'm circling these verses because they are verses that show us that God wants to and can hear the confusion and the strain that is in our hearts. They have not been, they have not been edited out of the Bible for us. They're not too dangerous that God said that can't be in inspired scripture. Get those verses out of there. God can handle the confusion and the the strain that we feel when we see life happening around us. There's some religions in this world where if you say things like this or if you do things in certain places, you can be killed for doing them. And yet the Christian faith and the God of the Bible has a, has a strength to hear those things and not be taken aback by them. To not push you and I away from him when we think these things. We may struggle with it. Maybe in the church culture that you grew up in, or even maybe you're feeling it here, there's times where the questions you have and the doubts that you have about what God is doing in your life, you feel like we couldn't handle it and possibly because of our immaturity we can't. But I want to tell you this, God can handle it. God can hear these things. God can take them in. The Psalms have many, many lament Psalms that are weighty, and they're down. Probably the, the one that's the clearest is Psalm 88, which is, which is down. David is in the depths of pain, and it never even rises up. Most lament Psalms kind of rise up in hope by the end. Psalm 88 is down and stays down. At the end of Psalm 88, he says this in verse 16 Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Period. It's down. What do you do with your questions? What do you do with the doubts that are in your hearts? What do you do when you, like Habakkuk, you survey the land around you and you say, God, I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't think you can handle the problems in my life or in the world around me. Let me encourage you just to remember these three things, that God wants to hear your concerns. God wants to hear them. The reason why this is captured for us, one of the reasons, is to show us, it's an example for us, that God wants to hear these things from us. He knows that we are needy, He created us, He knows all things, but He wants us to express those to Him in an honest relationship. But secondly, remember this not only does God want to hear our concerns, God is not easily offended. I am easily offended. If you come up to me after and you say that message really stunk, I'll try to like, take as much you know, good criticism from that as I can, but I may be possibly offended in the moment because of my immaturity. God is not. God can handle these things. What you're feeling that nobody else can handle, he can handle them. Tell him. And thirdly, God is near to those who are brokenhearted if we've seen anything in the Gospel of Mark as we've been going over it for the last five months, it's that Jesus, when he sees weakness, when he sees trouble, when he sees difficulty, he doesn't run away, he runs to it. God is near to those who are struggling God is near to those who have questions. So Habakkuk comes here with all these questions, all these things swirling around in his mind. He's confused and he's just getting them out and he's telling God these things. No matter who God is, he's just letting it out. And God then, in verses 5 through 11, answers him. Now let's just read a few verses here because our time is slipping away. Verse 5 says this, This is God responding to him. "'Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves.'" I don't know if you've had this before but sometimes you just vent, you just want to like say something. You're having a bad day, maybe you come home and your roommate is there or maybe your husband or your wife is there or maybe it's one of your kids and you just like you let it out. It almost sounds like verses 2 through 4, you're just like, "Ah, this is terrible." You you just vent and you're not necessarily looking for an answer from anybody. As a husband, I've learned that over the years. I haven't learned the lesson completely, but sometimes I still try to answer it. But you're just like venting. You're just saying something. Maybe that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's just like trying to get it off his chest. He's just trying to say the things that he's struggling with. C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, says this, Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think, all nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half of the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. I don't think Lewis is trying to insult us, but he's just telling us the truth of the matter. Most of our questions, most of the things that we even say to God are... Motives are misaligned. Our questions are coming from faulty foundations. They are, they're broken at their base level. And what God does here in this moment is he answers the right questions for Habakkuk. The questions maybe that Habakkuk doesn't even want an answer to or doesn't even know that he's asking, God is going to answer them. And the word is going to be again, Heavy. And he begins with this. He says at, in verse 5, look among the nations and see. And then he says, wonder and be astounded. That word wonder, we often associate that more with Christmas time. But God is saying, wonder at what you're going to see happen around you. And I don't know if you've wondered lately. I, I find wonder when I look at some sort of beautiful work that someone has done. I I painted a, a small painting, uh, rec- not recently, like a year or two ago for Liz. I was like a card. It wasn't wondrous, okay? If someone says, I painted one painting, it's not going to be wondrous, okay? But it was, it was the thought that counted. But if you go into a museum and you see a painting, like a Rembrandt or a Picasso or something that kind of is in line with your school of paint love, you're like, how did someone do that? How did someone take this paint and a brush and create this masterpiece? Or maybe it's a, a, a piece of uh, a building, the architecture. You look at this building and you're like, man, how did someone take all of these ideas, all the, all the engineering, and they built this thing? You are s- sitting there in wonder. You're sitting there in awe. And so God says to Habakkuk, here's what you're going to need to do to understand how I'm actually working in this world. You need to think and ponder with wonder and be astounded by what I'm actually doing and what I'm actually capable of doing. God here then says the work that he's able to do is that he's sovereign over nations. So we see there in verse 6 that he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. Habakkuk's saying, we have a problem with our nation here, God. I'm seeing injustice happening in Israel. And God says, the solution is actually going to come outside of Israel. I work on a larger scale than just your life. I work on a macro level. If you've ever read any books on leadership or running a business, what we've discovered over you know, generations of running businesses. I don't run a business, so I'm just saying what the books say. What we've discovered is almost all those books have some sort of chapter on focus. Some sort of, you know, statement on if you want to have a successful business or if you want to be a successful person in business, you need to focus. You need to, like, strip away all the busyness of all that could go on, and you need to focus on, like, one thing as a business. Or maybe as a person, focus on, like, these two things. You know, in our world, kind of the most famous business person lately is Elon Musk, right? Here's this guy who, you know, they say works 80 to 100 hours a week, and he runs SpaceX, and he runs Tesla, these two massive companies. He's, I think today at least, he's the most wealthiest person in the world that could change on Monday. But Elon Musk has given many interviews and he's talked about what he actually does in his week in those 80 to 100 hours. People ask him, man, you run these two massive companies, what do you do? And he says, I give 60 to 90% of my time on two things, design issues and engineering issues. That's it. Almost 90% of my time on those two things. Because you're like, man, running a company, a space company, electric car company, shareholders, HR problems, like go down the gamut of all that needs to be done. And Elon says, I focus down. Well, Habakkuk here is writing down for us God's response and God is telling him, I am different than you on that. Don't bring your view of productivity into my actions. He's saying, I deal with nations. I see all that's going on. You have to simplify to be productive as a human. God doesn't have to do that. God can do a million things at one time and be fully in control of what's happening. We can't even get our mind around that. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you will be astounded. And even if I told you what was going to happen, you wouldn't be able to wrap your mind around it. All you're seeing is the, the terrible things going on around you. Could it be possible, Habakkuk? that I'm actually doing something right in the middle of all that chaos. And so we're left with this question because verses 6 through 11 we won't go through them in detail but it gives details about how the Babylonians are they are uh, wicked people. Like it gives like specifics about how they're actually going to do this and so as God saying he's going to use evil to fulfill his purposes. And that is one of those questions on the stage C.S. Lewis tried to answer in Mere Christianity. And I'm not going to be able to answer that here on the stage for you. But what we're left with is one overarching view of God and that he is capable of handling severely complex issues. That God is actually able to handle those things. Tim Keller puts it this way. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean that there can't be one. God is telling Habakkuk, you can't understand all that's happening, but I'm actually doing something in your midst. We also now sit on, on this side of the cross. Habakkuk is looking at the character of God through an Old Testament lens, which you can see the grace of God and the love of God in the Old Testament, we have the wonderful advantage of being able to look at Jesus and see that God is in charge of everything, but at his core and at the root of his being is love and grace and care towards his creation. If he was just a God who was in control of everything, but he was evil and he was wicked, this would be the worst news in the world. Habakkuk would be a terrible book for us to look at. But because of Jesus, because we can see Jesus, and because we can look in the Old Testament and see the goodness and the grace of God, it's actually something for us then to ponder and consider this weighty oracle, this weighty message that we have seen. And my calling in the the end here, the conclusion is that I think what we need and the message for us to take away from Habakkuk is that we need to actually follow in his example. We need to practice going to God with our questions. We need to practice hearing from God's oracles, from his weighty messages. And we need to do that together. And we use a New Testament word for that. It's called discipleship. We need to disciple each other in the way of Jesus. Help each other along in doing exactly what Habakkuk is doing here in chapter 1. Wrestle with God. Not understand what God is doing. But then together, think about these things and look at the word. And see with wonder, astounding at what God has done through history and what he's going to continue to do. And in our confusion and in our anger or in our joy and our happiness, We go back to God, to Jesus himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is another famous author who wrote The Cost of Discipleship. I don't know if you know his background story, but in Germany, when the Nazis were coming to power, um, Hitler wanted not only control of the society in general, he wanted control of the minds and the hearts of all Germans. And so he even tried to infiltrate into the evangelical church And some of the leaders at that time were kind of coming on board with his vision for Germany, for the Aryan race and some of those things. And Bonhoeffer was like, what? And he was part of a group that signed a statement saying, we are not for these values and these things that Hitler is standing. It is against the word of God. And in that season, there was tension and division within the church. And so some of the ministers said, Okay, Bonhoeffer, we want you to actually prepare the next generation of ministers. We need to prepare them to be able to stand as believers in the, in the, under the weight of this Nazi regime. And so they said, Bonhoeffer, will you actually start an underground seminary And train some new leaders. So Bonhoeffer did that near the town of Finkenwald. He started this small seminary of people that focused on a few things. They focused on scripture. They focused on prayer. They focused on confession. And they focused on shared rhythms together. That was it. Those four things. And word began to go out of this little seminary that was happening. And and some of the German pastors were almost a little worried about it. And one of them, a friend of Bonhoeffer, went to go visit Bonhoeffer and to kind of like see what Bonhoeffer was doing, but also to like kind of pump the brakes a little bit on Bonhoeffer. Like just take it easy, man. Like tension is rising high in our country. Don't go like crazy with all this discipleship stuff. Just slow it down. And so Bonhoeffer, when he recognized that, took the man, his friend, on a walk to go see something that was really near to them. They went to see a German airfield that was just over the, a small lake and around the bend from them. He wanted to show him what the context and the contrast was between this seminary that was making disciples and this military that was making disciples. And the story goes this way. Let me just read a paragraph. It says this, When the two rowers, so they took a little boat, reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel, who was the other minister, up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing, and soldiers moved hurriedly with purpose and patterns, that, like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty, and that it would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. One author put it this way, Bonhoeffer said, this, pointing to the seminary, needs to be stronger than that, pointing to the military. And that is still our calling. When we receive these heavy words from a book like Habakkuk. The discipleship that we do here has to be stronger than the discipleship that every single one of us is entering into Monday through Saturday. You are being discipled into the ways of the world. And Jesus says to us, my kingdom is not of this world. You're in it, but my kingdom is not of this world. So together... Here at Citizens, on our two-year anniversary, we want to remind ourselves that we have been called to make disciples of Jesus Christ so that when we go out into that world, the one that we represent is him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the blessings of being gathered together. Thank you for Jesus, for the truth that is found in him. Lord, I pray that every single one here would take one step closer to Christ today, one step closer in our discipleship of Jesus. Lord, we are imperfect. You know that. And yet you take us in as brothers and sisters into your family under the umbrella of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.